The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 16 as we not only conclude our journey through Samson's story this morning, uh, but we're actually concluding our journey through all the judges in this book. Uh, at, after Samson's story, it's, it's the rest of the book's really just a long conclusion to the downward trajectory that we have been on. And we're going to feel that downward trajectory continue today as Samson, he, he is our judge that will actually take that downward trajectory to its deepest depths. You can see that if you just look at the six major judges that we have had so far. The first three major judges, uh, they, they, they were all okay. You know, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah slash Barak, they, they were all okay. But by the time we got to Gideon, Gideon, we saw, kill some of his fellow Israelites. Then Jephthah, Jephthah killed his own child. And Samson, Samson, we will see, kill himself. Do you see that the downward trajectory of the book of Judges is one of self-destruction? Do you see God's people destroying themselves? Gideon killing some Israelites, Jephthah literally sacrificing his own future generations, and Samson killing himself. Like, like it is a downward trajectory of self-destruction. And Samson's story shows us how it happens. Remember, like we've seen that Samson is an embodiment of God's people. We've seen that all throughout his story. His life, it, it illustrates what's true of all of Israel at this time. And so his life is a warning to all of Israel of, of how, not just all of Israel, but to us, it's a warning to all of God's people in every generation of how the downward spiral into the darkness of self-destruction happens. Samson's life is a warning. But his life isn't just a warning. Simultaneously, it's also a witness. His life bears witness to the bright light of the gospel that no darkness can conquer. And these two truths, this warning and this witness, these two truths are on full display in this climactic story of Judges chapter 16. This morning, I just, I just have two truths for us to see. That, that warning and that witness. We're going to see two truths uh, through, through Samson. We'll see a truth about Samson i.e. a truth about God's people, because he embodies God's people. And I want us to see a truth about God. These two truths, the warning that we'll see through Samson, the witness that we'll see through God, the, these two truths could not be more different. And yet, they can both be summed up with the same three words. The suffering servant. The suffering servant. Those three words summarize the warning and they summarize the witness of Judges 16. They summarize the truth we see about Samson, and they summarize the truth we see about God. So first, first let's see how they summarize the warning through Samson. Judges 16, starting verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place, and they set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. So this opening scene of Samson's story, it's, it's like a, a hinge in his story. And in other words, it summarizes what we've already seen in chapters 14 and 15, and it foreshadows what's to come in the rest of chapter 16. 
It, it summarizes what we've already seen. Do you not see right here that Samson's life has not changed? I mean, in chapter 14 and 15, what do we see him do? We saw him venturing into enemy territory. Here he does the same. Not to fight the enemy, no. In chapter 14 and 15, we saw he went there to sleep with the enemy. Here he does the same. And he's still relying on his own strength to get him out of any trouble that he gets into. This is a summary of everything that we've already seen, but it's also a foreshadowing of what's coming because through this scene, we're not just getting a repeat of what's come before. No, through the scene, all of it's darkening. The darkness that Samson dives into, it, it's, it's deepening right here. You see that in, in the fact that Samson doesn't just go into enemy territory again. He goes to the deepest point he can go. Gaza is on the far edge of Philistine territory. He's far from home. Loving the enemy like we saw from the God that he's supposed to love. We see that because now he's not just loving the enemy like we saw in 14 and 15. No, he is full on. And it doesn't just get him into trouble. It gets him into the most desperate situation that he's ever been in. The, the enemy surrounds the only escape he's got, the city gate. There would have been guard houses on both sides of it. They chill out there for the night thinking we'll get him in the, in the early morning. See? And that's what we get. Verse 3. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose, gets up earlier than they're expecting. And he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all. And he put them on his shoulders and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So while the guards likely are sleeping, he, he takes these locked gates and just rips them out of the ground. And then he carries them 40 miles into Israelite territory, as if to say, your gates can't hold me in or keep me out. Between my land and yours, I will come and go as I please. And, and here, 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 I, I want you to see with this feat of strength, we see the darkness deepening again. Because with this feat of strength, something is missing. Do you notice what's not here? There's no mention of who? Spirit of the Lord. In chapters 14 and 15, three different times, we heard the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson in order to empower his strength. But throughout chapter 16, the source of Samson's strength isn't mentioned. At least not until the very, very end. Why? I think, you can test this with me, I think it's because Samson has begun to believe that his strength was his to wield whenever, however he wants. I mean, is this not why he thinks he can go as deep into enemy territory as he wants to, sin as much as he wants to, because he believes that he's got the strength to get himself out of any situation? Samson has begun to believe that God's blessing is his birthright. And it's leading him to take God's grace for granted. His strength was a gift of God's grace that he just poured out on him. Samson didn't earn it, and he definitely didn't deserve it. It was a gift of grace, and he's taking God's grace 
for granted. And he is embodying what all of Israel was doing at the time. What we see Israel do throughout their history, again and again and again throughout Scripture, we see God's people get comfortable with the enemy, flirting with the the enemy, seeking pleasure even through intimacy with their enemies and their enemies' gods. And while they do that, simultaneously, they believe they're invincible because they're God's chosen people. Just go read the prophets. And the prophets will be all over the people about how they are embracing idolatry, immorality, injustice, and yet still think that they are untouchable. Why? Because we're the chosen people of God. We've got the temple. He's going to protect us no matter what we, we do. They begin to see God's blessing as their birthright, so they take his grace for granted. The question is, do we? Like Samson is here to serve as a a warning. This is how, Shades, this this is how the downward spiral into self-destruction happens. We take God's grace for granted because we... We think of God's grace as a thing. We talk about it as a gift, right? And so we imagine it as a gift, a thing that God gives us. And we go, thank you for the grace, the forgiveness, the guarantee of eternity. I shall be on my way to live however I want because I've got forgiveness for all of it. I've got the guarantee of eternity. Thank you for this thing that we call grace. But shades, grace is not a what, it's a who. Namely, Jesus. By grace, we are united with him. We are given the gift of him. And he sets us free, free from living however I want. A life of living however I want, that's not freedom. That is self-deception that puts you on a one-way path to destruction. That is slavery to death. That's the only place it can end up. Union with Christ sets you free from that, free from trying to find satisfaction in sin, which it can never get, to finding satisfaction in him. It sets you free from death and free to life, life in Christ, don't be deceived like Samson and believe that God's grace is a thing, that his blessing is your birthright. God's blessing is not our birthright. It's Christ's. And it only becomes ours through us being united with him. When I'm united with Christ, I don't walk wherever I want. I walk wherever he goes because I'm with him. Shade, Samson serves as a warning because he cannot even see. He can't even see that he is on a downward trajectory and its, its destination is self-destruction. The next scene, the next scene shouts this warning at us by showing us just how blind Samson is. And it's doing this to shake us and hopefully wake us up so that we might see. Look at the next scene with me, Judges 16 and verse 4. After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, another woman. Remember I told you verses 1 through 3 are foreshadowing what's coming in the rest of the chapter? So another woman through whom we should expect another trap. And with the darkness deepening, we should be doubting that Samson will escape by his own strength this time. 
This is the fourth woman in Samson's story, the only one who gets named. Her name's Delilah. Delilah. <laughs> Sorry. Been singing it in my head all week. If you don't get that, that's fine. We're not 100% certain what her name means. Uh, there's really two main possibilities. It sounds like the word flirt. It also sounds like the word night. Really doesn't matter what direction you take. I think they both make the exact same point. Have we not seen Samson flirting with darkness all throughout his life? Falling in love with darkness. And, and now we see where such love leads. Look at verse 5. The lords of the Philistines came to Delilah and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. Not a great translation. The word means afflict, literally to torture. And we will give you, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. In other words, 5,500 pieces of silver. The Philistines had five capital cities. It was a pentopolis. It had, had five lords. This is a ton of money. So... Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and, you know, like how you might be bound and, uh, you know, that someone could subdue you, theoretically. Here we're getting the truth about Samson. It's, it's stated through Delilah's words quite clearly. This is the truth we need to see about Samson. Samson's love of the world leads to slavery. This is the truth that Judges has been screaming at the people of God throughout the entirety of the book. This is, this is where your love of the world and its idols, this is where it leads. This is the end point. Samson's love of the world leads to slavery. That's Delilah's aim. She says, tell me where your great strength lies. In other words, get more intimate with me than you've ever been with anybody. Share all your secrets with me. Tell me, tell I want, I want all of your heart. I want total intimacy. And we're told where that will lead to Samson being bound and subdued. It will lead to him suffering and it will lead to slavery. It will lead to him being a suffering servant. Told you those three words could summarize the warning. Samson's love of the world will lead him to be a suffering servant. It leads to slavery. We can see that, like so clearly. Why can't he? I think that he at least senses something. There's, there's a part of him that, that senses maybe he shouldn't enter into intimacy with Delilah in this way because he holds back. He lies to her three times. Just look at the first lie. Verse seven. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, uh, then I shall become weak, be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to Delilah seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Apparently while he's sleeping, dude naps a lot. Now she'd been lying, now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to Samson, 
The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Clearly, he does not fully trust her. So why does he stick around? Idiot that he is, why does he play this game at all? I mean, we know the answer, don't we? All my dudes know the answer, right? (laughs) Clearly, he wants Delilah. He enjoys the relationship he's got with the enemy, and the risk must be worth the reward. I love, I think, I think all of you read this story the same way that I do. And so I'm going to say this. I, I love how we all read this story so pridefully. Like, like pointing out Samson's stupidity as if we don't do the exact same thing. Nobody in here ever had a toxic dating relationship where all your friends were looking at you? Idiot. Again? Why? Don't you see the same thing keeps happening? And even, even if you've never found yourself in that situation, don't we all do this with sin? Is this not our dance? Like, like how many times has God warned us about the consequences of sin? How many times have we seen the consequences of sin? How it doesn't satisfy, but it actually leads us to slavery in the end, into bondage, and yet we keep flirting with it anyway. How many times do we buy, for example, how many times do we buy the lie that Samson's buying right here, that lust and sex will satisfy? Whether in singleness or in marriage, whether in reality or in fantasy. Or, another example, in an election year, How many times do we buy the lie that politics will bring me peace? So I sell my soul to a candidate or a party or a platform. Or, another example, how how many times have I, getting really personal, this is not a theoretical I, this is an I, Jonathan, how many times have I admitted that social media plays a massive role. It is a massive driver in my depression. And yet when I have restless nights, instead of praying, seek satisfaction through endless scrolling that ends up leaving me even emptier. Proverbs 26 and verse 11 paints a vivid picture. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Chase, I don't know about you, but I need to be slow to judge Samson right here because if I'm honest, in him I actually see myself as he goes back to embrace his sin again and again, flirting with the darkness all the way to self-destruction. And why? Because he buys the lie that it will satisfy. That is the manipulative promise that Delilah employs. Look, Look at verse 10, Judges 16 and verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. 
That's that's some reverse. What was it called, Brad? Darvo? Deny? Reverse victim offender? Sheesh. Some psychological mind games going on. She does it again. This happens three times. She does it again in verse 13. And then she says what she means most explicitly in verse 15. Look at it. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me. You don't love me. Your heart's not with me. She is manipulatively holding out the lie that intimacy with her is what will satisfy. Samson resists three times. We read the first one, the whole seven bowstring stuff. In verse 11, he tells, nah, this time try new ropes. Verse 13, he concocts the weirdest story. Take the seven locks of my head, which I don't know, maybe dude had some kind of wicked cool braids or maybe dreads going on, but take the seven locks of my head and weave them into a loom and pin them with a pin. Dude's got to be a heavy napper, y'all. One by one, she tries each of these lies, and he frees himself every single time until, verse 16, when she pressed him hard. That's a callback. It's a callback to chapter 14 and verse 17. If you were with us, you might remember that's when Samson had told a riddle to some Philistines in the midst of a marriage festival. And his wife pressed him hard for the answer. So we know what's coming. Now's when he gives in. She pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. And his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If you haven't been with us, a Nazarite typically was a temporary vow that someone would take. They wouldn't drink wine, they wouldn't touch anything dead, and they wouldn't cut their hair. It was all a sign that they were set apart, consecrated to the Lord, and they would do those three things until their vow was over. Samson's been a Nazarite from birth. He's supposed to be one till death. He says, if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak, and be like any other man. Before we are very quick to call Samson stupid right here, I don't think he actually believes this is true. Because after it happens, this is what we read in verse 20. Look at it. She shaves his head and goes, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know. Bro's got to know his hair's gone. That's got to be like 20 pounds. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Even with his head shaved, he expects to have his strength. Why? Because he believed God's blessing was his birthright. The strength was his to use whenever and however he wanted. I don't believe for a second. 
I don't think he believed for a second that shaving his head would take away his strength. So why did it? Was his hair magical? No. Not at all. That's what the Philistines thought. That's what Delilah was after. Some type of magical solution. That's how pagan religions work. Like magic. Magic has to do with external conditions. If I can say the right words, if I can do the right actions, if I can make the right concoctions, then I can get my desired result. So if the right action is to grow my hair for strength, then I grow my hair and I'm strong. If I shave it, then I'm weak. Magic hair. Pagan religion is about external conditions. But the Lord, he looks not on outward appearances, but on what? The heart. True religion, we are told from beginning to end of Scripture, true religion is a relationship with the living God. It's not about external conditions. It's about internal affections. It's not that external conditions don't matter, but they only matter or mean something if they are naturally flowing out of a heart that is rightfully related to the Lord. Is this not what we saw again and again and again through our series on the Sermon on the Mount? God cares nothing for the external conditions being met by the Pharisees. He cares everything about the condition of our hearts. Samson's heart has been on a downward journey away from the Lord. We've seen evidence of that externally through his breaking of his Nazarite vow. We've seen him drink. We've seen him interact with a ton of dead stuff. The only piece of his vow that was left was his hair. And the fact that he's willing to tell Delilah about it reveals where his heart is. This is not about Samson's hair. It's about his heart. I don't think for a second that if Samson had accidentally caught his hair on fire at some point in his life, he would have been reduced to weakness. It's not about his hair, it's about his heart. And Delilah knows that his heart is finally and fully hers. Look at verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Samson sleeps, one of those killer naps, in Delilah's lap, and she has his head shaved, and now he becomes weak, not because he lost his hair, but because he gave his heart away. His strength leads. That's what verse 19 says. And parallel to that, in the exact same wording, in the very next verse, verse 20, we're told the Lord leads. We're being told his strength leaves because the Lord leaves, not because his head was shaved. And now we see the destination of his downward trajectory, slavery. Look at verse 21. And the Philistines seized him. That's a callback to verse 3. Remember when Samson yanked up those gates of the city? Same word used right there. He seized the gates of Gaza, ripped them up so he could escape. Now he's the one who will be seized to be imprisoned in Gaza. 
Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Samson's love of the world leads to slavery. The one who was so strong has become weak. The one who once seized the gates of Gaza to escape is himself seized and confined at Gaza. The one who once burned the Philistines' grain is forced to grind it. The one who was blind spiritually now has his condition reflected physically. His eyes are gouged out and he literally cannot see. Shades, do you, do you see? Do you see where love of the world leads? Don't think that it's innocent flirtation. It, it leads to slavery. And this story's meant to make us all ask, is that our trajectory? Like, don't, don't think, well, well, Jonathan, you know, I, uh, I attend church, don't I? And I, I sing the songs, and I pray the prayers, and I, I take the communion. I, I say the religious words, and I do the religious actions. That's like Samson saying, I have the hair. His hair wasn't magic, and neither is any of this. The Lord looks not on external appearances, but on the inward condition of the heart. For real religion is a relationship. Shades, do you know? God, I feel like I could fill a book with the number of friends I've had who I have watched do all the religious actions and say all the religious words for years while simultaneously flirting with the world until the day they finally let the world cut their hair. In other words, until the day they finally deconstruct their faith and walk away and fully and finally give their heart to the world. Please hear my heart shades. I do not believe for a single solitary second that a true believer in Christ can lose their salvation. But the warnings that we see in the word exist to be wielded by the Holy Spirit in our lives to woo us back to Christ when we stray. No, I don't think an authentic believer can lose their salvation because I think an authentic believer has the spirit in them so that when they hear these warnings, they're wielded to their right effect. Chase, I'm, I'm pleading with you in the midst of a current culture that praises deconstructing one's faith. I am pleading with you to see that that's not freedom. I don't care what it seems like. Its ultimate destination is self-destruction. That's the warning we're meant to see through Samson. His love of the world leads to slavery. His love leads him to become a suffering servant. The question is, does Samson finally see? Like now that he's lost his, his physical sight, does he gain it spiritually? I think we get a hint in verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Why does that matter? We've said his hair is not magic. That's... That's what the Philistines believed. And actually, 
that the Philistines believed his hair was magic, that, that fact is confirmed by them not caring if it grows back. Because for a Nazarite to shave their head meant their vow was over. Like in other words, it doesn't matter if Samson's hair grows back or not. His vow is broken. Magic gone. That's what the Philistines believe. So they don't care if it grows back. And what we, what we are meant to see through his hair is an external sign of an inward reality. Samson's hair was always symbolic. It was symbolic of him being set apart. And now that he's blind, I think he is finally beginning to see what being set apart to the Lord really means. Look at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, their God of grain, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Philistines celebrate what they see as Samson's defeat and their God's victory. Dagon has triumphed. Little do they know his celebration is going to turn into a cemetery. They throw this massive party, fill a room with royalty, and there's space for overflow on the roof. 3,000 people just on the roof alone. At this party, they bring Samson out so they can mock him and have a good laugh. But watch what happens while they party. Samson prays. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. This is only the second time that we've seen Samson pray. If you remember the first one that comes at the end of chapter 15, it is quite the self-centered prayer. Some people think that this is the same thing. But before we write it off as a second self-centered prayer, I think there are four things we need to see. First, Samson calls God by his covenant name. See that? God in all caps, the Lord God, God in all caps, that's Yahweh right there. Samson's never done that. We've never seen him do that. Not only does he call God by his covenant name, but he combines it with Adonai. That's why you get the title Lord God. In other words, this is a recognition of Yahweh's sovereignty. This is Samson bending the knee to God as king, crying out to him on the basis of a covenant relationship. I feel certain of this because second thing we need to see, Samson shows humility. He does it through the words, remember me. Remembrance in scripture, it, it, it doesn't, it's not the opposite of forget. It's not like God forgot about Samson. To ask God to remember something is asking him to act upon it. Samson is asking God to act upon his behalf. He's humbling himself and saying, I need, I need help. Third, he's saying I need help because, third thing we need to see, Samson now knows the source of his strength. What does he pray? Strengthen me. He he knows God is the source of his strength, and so he pleads. Why? Because of the fourth thing, Samson finally sees. I think that's why he asks to be avenged for his eyes. Because he's no longer blind. He now sees, 
And notice, notice, he's not seeking vengeance in his own strength. No, he knows vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. He's asking God to execute vengeance, to execute judgment and justice in his strength. Samson finally sees he's not the savior. He's in need of one. And he cries out for salvation, and God gives it. Verse 29. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Here's the truth we need to see about God. God's love for the world leads to salvation. God's love for the world leads to salvation. Remember, Samson embodies what's true of God's people. And right here, do we not see through Samson the same thing we've seen throughout the book of Judges? Have we not seen repeatedly God's people become slaves of their enemies? And again and again, what do they do? They cry out to him. And what happens again and again? Because of his love, he saves them. Shades, Samson's love of the world leads to slavery. But God's love for the world leads to salvation. In Samson's death, God is accomplishing the salvation that he promised at Samson's birth. Go back and read. Go back and read Judges chapter 13 and verse 5, where God is talking about Samson's birth, and he says that through Samson, he will begin to save his people from the Philistines. And that's what's happening right here. And all of this... All of this, this this whole scene, it is both a summary and a foreshadowing of God's full and final salvation that will come through Christ. For at Jesus' birth, it will be announced not that he will begin to save his people from their enemies, but that he will fully and finally save his people from their sins. For out of love, Jesus will serve his people by suffering in their place. Matthew 20 and verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ran- as a ransom for many. He came to serve by suffering in our place. Jesus' love leads him to be the suffering servant. Shades, shades, I told you that the, the truth about Samson and the truth about God that we would see today, they could not be more different, but they can both be summarized the same way. The suffering servant. Samson's love of the world would lead him to be a suffering servant. But Jesus' love for the world leads him to be a willing suffering servant, the suffering servant that we're told about in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Shades, do you see? Do you see, Samson's story, it isn't just a warning, it also bears witness. It points us to the one who likewise will be betrayed by someone he loves, turned over to torturers, publicly mocked, 
Samson, a, a strong man who became weak and out of his weakness came his strongest feat? Yeah, that points us to one who though he was the strongest willingly became weak and out of that weakness came the strongest salvation. Samson, with with his arms literally outstretched, dying underneath an avalanche of his enemies, it points us to the one who stretched out his arms and died to crush the enemy. Samson bears witness to Jesus. The darkest moment in his story shines forth the bright light of the gospel. Do you see, Shade, Samson's story, it, it warns us, yes, that love of the world leads to slavery. But it also bears witness that God's love for the world leads to salvation. Thus, his story presses us to ask, where is our heart at? Like fully and finally, where is our, is our heart flirting with the world? Or is it held fast by the one who has loved the world? The one who's loved you. Is your heart held fast? By Jesus Christ, the God whose love led him to be the suffering servant. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit wields this word, warning and witness, to shine a light into our lives and show us where our hearts are. Not to condemn us, but to comfort us as it brings us to you, to Christ. God, may we behold the insane beauty of your grace towards us. As all of us, like Samson, gone astray, each of us has turned his own way, but you have laid the iniquity of us all upon the shoulders of Jesus, your suffering servant, who served us by suffering in our place. Pray we see him more fully, love him more truly, that our hearts are fully, finally, captivated by him. We pray these things in his name for his glory. Amen.